and welcome. Uh, it's nice to see a number of familiar faces and all of you who I don't know. So, tonight's talk begins with a story. This is my version of one of the um, Buddhist, what are called Jataka tales. They're uh, tales of the former lives, past lives of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, and lives. Uh, and often uh, they're, they can be seen as kind of teaching fables. Um, don't have to believe in past lives necessarily, but they're um, a large collection of these stories. And uh, often the Buddha is, uh, takes birth as an animal or different uh, different circumstances and is said to be perfecting what are called the, the ten paramis, paramita in Sanskrit, these ten beautiful qualities of generosity and kindness and renunciation and energy and so on, ten of them. So, um, yeah, I decided last talk of the season, we'll have a story to start and hopefully something more than just that, but... Um, Anyway, here we go. So once long, long ago, the Bodhisatta, the one who would become the Buddha, was born as the son of the king and queen of Benares. This was a very joyous event for the royal couple. Long wanted a son or a child of any kind. And so on the prince's naming day, they decided to hold a large party, a big event, and they invited 800 fortune tellers to come to the palace. And they, they wanted these different soothsayers and psychics to um, really investigate the prince's fortune, and, and by this they hoped to come up with an auspicious, an especially auspicious name for the prince, the young prince. And these different psychics and fortune tellers and soothsayers were offered uh, any gift they wanted, whatever they might desire to be happy in the moment. And so they all came to the palace, and and they were very clever. They had all these different ways of, um, you know, applying their craft of fortune telling. And some of them would read celestial signs and uh, the movement of the stars and tell the prince's fortune from this. And some of them would um, claim that they could, uh, through their powers, see the past lives of the prince and then predict his, his uh, future from that. And some of them would work in pairs and one of them would uh, seem to enter into a trance and they'd just spout unintelligible gibberish and they, uh, their partner would uh, then translate that into something. So they all um, started telling their, their predictions and stories about the prince. And, um, and they tried to come up with things that they thought would really please the royal couple in order to curry favor at the court and hopefully get uh, more gifts and commissions and so forth. And, and after hearing from all these different fortune tellers, the king and queen um, were not that impressed that there was one uh, one. A soothsayer who had been sitting quietly in the corner, and so they they beckoned this one to come forward. And um, she was a, a a true yogi. This one, 
and had really developed uh, her mind and especially the powers of concentration very, very deeply. And she uh, was expert at reading certain signs uh, on the body, the shape of the head and of the ears and hands and feet and so forth. And so uh, she um, sat quietly and then uh, after looking at the young baby prince, she spoke and she said, uh, my Lord, speaking to the king, this being is of great merit. He'll become king after you. Your son will become highly skilled in the use of five weapons and will be known throughout the land as the greatest master of these five weapons throughout the area. And so based on this, they named the prince, Prince Five Weapons. He was raised with everything, the best things I could possibly provide, best education, the finest things. He grew to be very handsome and clever, very regal bearing as a young man. His skin took on the rich brown color of polished mahogany, jet black hair with kind of coppery highlights, and just enough curls so that when he wore his turban, one or two curls would slip out underneath just the right way. He dressed only in the finest clothes of Benares silk, and it just seemed as though a gentle perfume preceded him wherever he went. When he turned 16, the king decided it was time to send him off to college, and he said, go, my son, to Takasila. There you will find a world-famous teacher. Learn all you can from him. Give him this money as payment. And the king gave the prince a thousand gold coins to take, send him on his way. So the prince goes to the town of Stakasila and finds the famous teacher there at the college, and he applied himself diligently to his studies. And quickly, he, he outshone all the others, became the best pupil, really outstanding, and really um, applied himself very vigorously. He he studied music and calligraphy, art, debate, all sorts of uh, martial arts, and he became skilled also for this. Teacher was very famous for teaching the use of these five weapons, bow and arrow, sword, spear, and club. And he grew, of course, more dashing and handsome all the time as well. So after he had learned all his teacher could teach him, his teacher gave him a special uh, graduation award of five of these weapons, special ones. He also gave him a special suit of clothing and sent him on his way home to the palace in Benares. And so while he was traveling along, the prince came to a village that was situated on the edge of a great forest. And the local people there said, it's, it's a haunted forest, you shouldn't go in there. There's a, a, a monstrous demon in there terrible monster, said, don't go there. This monstrous demon named Sticky Hair, and he kills everyone he sees. But the prince, in a lot of confidence, was fearless as a young lion, eager to test his mettle. So he pushed on into the forest, ignoring the warnings, and he came to a clearing where the, this ogre was dwelling there. Now this monstrous uh, sticky-haired monster. He was as tall as a tree. His head was as big as a house. 
He had huge bloodshot eyes. They were like the size of wagon wheels. Each of them staring off in a different direction. He had this huge mouth that was full of these brown teeth. They were so bucked he couldn't close his mouth completely. And they were so full of holes that vultures and other animals had taken to nesting in the holes in his teeth. He drooled almost constantly. And this horrible saliva collected in his his body, covered in this mass of fetid hair. And it just added to this overall stickiness there. His breath was so bad that the prince thought he would probably faint. His huge belly hung almost to his knees, covered with these festering white sores. His hands and feet were this mottled blue and white color. They, They looked and smelled like moldy cheese. So he started roaring and growling and making other tragic noises that just too horrible to even describe them. And he spoke and the earth shook and the trees kind of bent away to try to get, get away from the smell of his breath. Where do you think you're going, my little man? Where are you going in my forest? You look like a tasty morsel. I'm just going to gobble you up. Now the young prince just finished college, highest awards, thought he knew pretty much everything, thought he could do just about anything. Excuse me for a moment, said the prince. He stepped behind a tree. He quickly changed into his special graduation outfit. (laughs) He slips on a fine silk sarong, midnight blue color, so dark it appeared almost black. Over this, a fine tunic woven of lotus threads. It had been bleached in the moonlight to the color of buffalo cream. He capped it off with a turban of a dusty rose color, one or two curls (laughs) slipping out from underneath. The demon just glared at him. He said, why are you dressing up in all this fine clothes? I'm just going to eat you, and I'm going to eat your clothes as well. Oh, well, might as well go out in style. Besides, O fierce demon, I am Prince Five Weapons, and I have come here on purpose to find you. I dare you to attack me. I will kill you easily with my first two weapons, my bow and poison-tipped arrows. Now, this was not just any bow. It was made of 54 interlocking pieces. And when it was assembled, it was stronger and more flexible than any ordinary bow. Prince tossed it into the air, and the pieces fit themselves together, shock cord, like tent poles. <laughs> you didn't know shock cord was invented that long ago, probably. <laughs> so he fits a poison-tipped arrow to the sword, draws it back with all of his young strength, sends an arrow straight at the monster, and just stuck to the sticky hair. He pulls out all the rest of his arrows. A blur, you could hardly see, it was so fast. They're all just sticking there in the fur, in the hair. He just shook his body from this house-sized head down to his moldy blue feet. And they just fell off like toothpicks on the ground. So Prince Five Weapons is watching this. He says, well, it might be a little trickier than I thought. So he draws his third weapon, 
a 33-inch long sword of the finest Damascus steel. This handle was made of jet black buffalo horn inlaid with precious stones. Razor sharp. Takes a huge breath, plunges the sword into the sticky monster, just sticks in the hair, disappears there. So he thinks to himself, well, I've still got two weapons left. And they are more powerful than these ones I've already used. So he chooses his fourth weapon, his spear. It's carved along the entire length of the shaft with magical symbols. Fused it with this incredible power. The tip, special alloy, razor sharp. Stepping back, takes aim. Launches forward with all of his strength. Launching the spear with enough force to split a tree. Just sticks to the sticky hair, hangs there like a toy. Was that a bee trying to sting me? said the monster. He plucked the spear out of his sticky hair and started picking his teeth with it. And he dislodged a mongoose that was in one of the holes in his teeth. Undaunted, the prince picks up the last of his weapons, his mighty war club. It's fashioned from a burl of teak, iron hard, studded with shark tooth spikes. He swings it at the giant. Once again, the sticky hair protects him. Club just hangs there. This is just getting tiresome, roared the monster. The prince yelled, hey, you sticky-haired monster, haven't you heard of me? Prince, five weapons? I have more than just these five weapons. I have the strength of my young man's body. I will break you into little pieces. Now, while he was at college, he'd mastered all these martial arts. Kung Fu, Taekwondo, Karate, all of them. (laughs) Thai boxing. He'd perfected some of his punches to the point where he could break a stack of bricks. He had Kung Fu kits. He could split a wall of stone. Really good. So he gave a mighty yell. There was a punch with his right fist. Sticks there. A roundhouse with the left. They're sticking there. A kick. His right foot. Taekwondo kick. Stuck. He followed it immediately after, just like a master, with another kick. Stuck. Two hands. Finally, two feet, it's hanging there. His last blow with his head, a special Taekwondo punch with his head. He butted the monster as hard as he could. That got stuck. So he's hanging there, both hands, both feet, and his head. And even while he's dangling there, he didn't show any fear. And the sticky-haired monster thought, this is unusual. This man is more like a lion than a man, even while in the grasp of a ferocious monster like me. He does not tremble with fear. In all the time I've been killing and eating people in this forest, I've never met anyone like this. Why isn't he afraid of me? Though he's afraid to eat him. He said, young man, why aren't you afraid of death? 
prince replied, why should I be afraid of death? There's no doubt that anyone who is born will ultimately come to death. This is the nature of things. Death is a part of nature. It comes to all who take birth. And the prince thought, well, these five weapons that were given to me by the world-famous teacher of Takasila have proven useless. Even the lion-like strength of my young man's body is no good against this sticky-haired monster. I have to go beyond my teacher, beyond my body, to the weapon of my mind, the only weapon I really need. So he continued speaking to the sticky-haired monster. There's one small detail, O oh, monstrous one, that I haven't told you about yet. My bow and arrow were actually just a single weapon. I have only used the first four. In my belly is a secret weapon. It's a diamond weapon. You cannot digest it. It will just cut you into bits, cut your intestines. That's why I'm not afraid of you. If you're foolish enough to swallow me, you're just going to die. If I die, you die. The prince realized that his greatest weapon of all was the power of his mind. Precious diamond gem of the mind. Stronger than anything else he possessed. So he used his intelligence in a simple but clever way, in a way that the sticky-haired monster could understand. Sticky hair thought, this fearless man is telling the truth. If I eat even as much as a pea-sized bite of him, I'm not going to be able to digest it. I'm going to let him go. So he gently freed him from the matted hair, set him down. You are a great man. I will not eat your flesh. I let you go free, just like the moon that reappears after an eclipse, so that you may shine pleasantly on all your friends and relatives. Nice imagery, admitted the prince. <laughs> Thanks, said Sticky Hair, who'd <laughs> always nursed a desire to be a poet. Well, the young prince, the Bodhisattva, had learned from his battle. He'd learned that the only dependable source of strength was to be found within, that the weapons of the outside world are not that reliable. They're limited. The diamond weapon of his mind brought the understanding that kindness is also a true and great protection, and that awareness infused with kindness is the greatest protection of all. And so out of gratitude and compassion, he decided to teach the unfortunate ogre, Oh, sticky hair, this life as a murderous demon is not leading anywhere. If you continue in, the, in this way, you will only go from darkness to more darkness. Now that you have spared me, you have seen that there is another way. It's never too late to change. I can show you a new way to live. So he started to teach this to Gerard monster. And eventually the monster agreed to follow the five training precepts. He committed himself to a life of non-harming. He agreed to take a bath, start a program of dental hygiene, <laughs> get some help with personal grooming, and to add leafy greens to his diet. After bathing, sticky hair began to lose his stickiness. He started flossing. And in the process, he evicted all the vultures and mongooses that were living in his teeth. And the prince also encouraged his interest in poetry, and he started getting some books, and he read verse to the mighty ogre. And after a time, Prince Five Weapons went to the villagers and 
uh, told them that the sticky-haired monster had changed his way and was no longer the dreadful demon they had feared for so long. And a few of them decided to go see for themselves, and they, they came to the, where the monster had been living, and they found him reclining in the shade by the side of a river reading a book of poetry with the prince. His mat of sticky hair had been washed, brushed to silky softness. His teeth were clean, smelled of rosewood, rose water and sandalwood. And over time, the children of the village became really friendly with sticky hair. They wove his no longer sticky hair into braids. They made flower garlands for him to wear. They nicknamed him Sticky. And he would give them piggyback rides and lift them up high so they could pick the mangoes and other fruit from the tops of the trees. And he started befriending the forest animals as well. Began to find friendship with the trees and the plants there. The prince continued his friendship and the local villagers started bringing him food and different offerings. And finally, after some time, the prince Five Weapons decided he needed to return to the palace in Benares and to the king and queen there. And Sticky was sad because the prince was his first and his best friend. The prince said, the children are your friends now. So are the animals and the trees. And he promised he would return to visit when he could. So he left the forest, returned to the palace in Benares, and eventually he became king after his father. But he honored his promise and he would return once a year to visit his friend in the forest, which had become known by this time as Sticky's Grove. Every time he came back, he brought a new book of poetry. So now he was king five weapons. And he began to notice changes over the years in uh, his friend's appearance. Sticky began to resemble the trees more and more. His hair became light and fine and more light and fine, like delicate strands of tree moss. His skin began to take on the appearance of smooth tree bark. King Five Weapons asked Sticky about these changes. He said, you were right about the trees becoming my friends. Trees have a lot to say if you take the time to listen. They've been teaching me about patience, that things happen in their own time and their own season that there are natural rhythms to life. The trees have taught me about the power of selfless giving, for they offer shade and shelter and food, and they ask for nothing in return. And in their turn, they receive the gifts that the rain brings, the gifts of sunshine and starlight, and the friendship of birds and animals. And so he began to change internally and externally. Began to transform from a a monster into a friendly forest deva, kind of tree deity. And the forest became known as a place of safety and shelter and wandering uh, religious seekers and uh, meditators would come there. They'd take up residence. They were welcomed and cared for by the sticky and the nearby villagers. And the king issued a proclamation that the forest would be protected, it would be a haven that no trees were to be cut and no animals would be hunted there. And so as uh, his life came to an end, the king, five weapons, made one last trip to the forest. He went along with one of his ministers. He was quite old now. He walked very slowly, bent over a bit, using a stick. 
his hair had become quite gray, but still some gentle curls and still one or two from under his turban, just in the right spot. And he finally came to the forest clearing and looked around. He didn't see his friend anywhere, just a beautiful tree-filled glade ringing with bird song, sheltering all who came. So he rested under the great tree that stood at the center of the glade, delighting there in the cool shade and the beautiful song of the birds. After a while, the minister said, perhaps we should return to the palace, your majesty. But he was so happy there that he said, oh, let's stay a little longer. So he delayed his journey for a day, and then one day became two, and two became three. And finally, he just decided he would stay there, resting in the shelter provided by his friend. And so he passed his final days in peaceful contemplation in Sticky's Grove. The end. See how we're doing on time. So there's a number of threads we might tease out of this as a, as a teaching story. sense of resolve and determination, courage even, steadfastness, kindness, compassion, generosity, all these uh, things expressed there in this relationship. There's another clear thread that I'd like to touch on tonight, and that has to do with the quality of confidence, or sometimes in this tradition we say faith. And when we use the word faith, which I will, it's the sense of confidence or trust, not so much a belief. And Prince Wife Weapons had a lot of confidence at the, in the story, very confident in his strength and in his weapons. But it was somewhat misplaced, his confidence, at least at first, because the weapons that he trusted so much, they were ineffectual in this battle he fought. And this quality of trust or confidence or faith is really key, I think, in, in this practice. If we're going to stay with it for any length of time. And it's said that faith is the seed of all wholesome states. Interesting to think about what that might mean. But I think we can see how it's this quality of confidence that would give us the uh, trust or inspiration to set out, some determination to set out into maybe what we might think of as unknown territory. And It's said that faith gives one the strength to uh, launch out to cross a, f- a flooded area. It's often an image that's used in some of the Buddhist texts. And for this faith, for our faith to become strong enough, a strong enough kind of energy in our lives to uh, inspire us to take a leap into the unknown, which really is so much what uh, this practice is about. It's really this journey into the unknown as we explore our own body and mind and heart. We discover things we didn't know. We never know what's going to happen when we sit down to meditate. So there needs to be something we encounter that 
uh, gives us this sense that we can connect to for this sense of trust. It's interesting to think what might give us this sense of confidence and enough uh, courage, really, I think, if we're taking this practice to depth. requires great courage. Look and see, really see for ourselves, and be able to face the doubts that often come. What would give us, um, where could we turn to find this sort of source of trust or confidence? And from what we might think of as a Buddhist um, um, perspective, you could say, Faith is often spoken of as being directly related to what are called uh, the three um, refuges or the triple gem. Refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha can sound very Buddhist. These words, what this triple gem might be, what would this be? How would that be a source of faith or a place of refuge or trust, safety? This word faith, sadda, in Pali, this Pali language that in the Theravada tradition we draw from these ancient texts in this language of Pali. It's very closely related to Sanskrit. Sadda, it literally means that which supports or upholds confidence. One of the teachers, one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society, where I'm teaching right now, Sharon Salzberg, she likens it to a um, kind of sense of, of a place, a safe place to, to rest one's heart. Faith as a, a place of safety in that regard. So this idea of, of uh, the triple gem of Buddha Dhamma Sangha uh, may or may not be uh, meaningful to us, but I think a simple way to think of that is a refuge in wakefulness, in the truth of things, and in our own potential to realize uh, what the Buddha was teaching, to realize freedom. It's said that after he had this enlightenment experience under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha was walking, after he left that area, he was walking to the place where he gave his first teaching, and he had this uh, radiant appearance, as it was described then, very um, stood out. And it said that a, a person who was uh, who he encountered along the road was really struck by the way he looked, and, and he said, "What what are you? Are you a are you human? Are you a god?" And the Buddha replied, "I am awake." And the word Buddha, same root as the word for Bodhi like the Bodhi tree, it's, it means awake. So a Buddhist is an awakest. Maybe some of us can relate to this idea of being awake, waking up. The Buddha, known as the awakened one. So we could see refuge in Buddha, this first uh, of the triple gem, first quality there is, as a refuge in wakefulness, this possibility that we might be able to be awake to the moment. 
And then what is it that we're awake to? What do we wake up to in this practice? Well, that's the second of the second quality of the triple gem of Dhamma, Dharma, Dhamma. We wake up to the truth of things, the truth of the way it is, you could say. The word Dhamma or Dharma means uh, has more than one meaning. Buddha Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, and it's expressed that way. But it really means something like uh, the law of nature, you could say. Dharma, the way it is, very simply. The deep level of that. So we take refuge in uh, wakefulness because that's a reliable thing. It's not dependent on things being any particular way. So it's a place of safety in, in a changing, unpredictable, uncontrollable world. Why would What would be reliable there? Well, this ability to be awake is possibly reliable. You can wake up to the truth of things. Or waking up to Dhamma, Dharma. Waking up to the way it is. We can stand on reality, on the truth of things, on the nature of things. That's also reliable doesn't matter what's going on. We can know in any moment. It's like this. This is the direct experience. We can know this. So that's also reliable. We can. doesn't matter what it's like. We can know it. We can know our experience directly in that way. And then this sense of, of refuge or trust or faith arising uh, in terms of what is called sangha. Sangha, this is sangha. We're making sangha here. The community of practitioners. Sometimes sangha is uh, spoken of as the, the disciples, those who practiced what the Buddha taught and, and uh, realized what he realized. But also sangha is this, uh, we create sangha when we come together like this. Any, I teach all over the place, a lot of places, and, and there's this, um, this thing that happens when a group assembles like this with this intention to look deeply into the mind and the heart, to cultivate qualities of wisdom, kindness, understanding, compassion. However we might look at, at that, whatever our uh, motivation was in coming here it was like uh, was said earlier all the different choices we might have of spending an evening we choose to come and spend time in meditation spend time with like-minded people perhaps listen to some teachings might find something of use there but this this intention towards uh, a deeper understanding of what life is about, really getting to um, the fundamental existential questions, you could say, of life. You know, what's, what's it about? If we're born, we're just going to age eventually, this movement inevitably towards death. What's, what's the, where's the point? What's, is there some understanding here that can lead to 
uh, a kind of freedom of mind and a peace, a deep kind of peace. So there's this this connection with this possibility there. And, and the Buddha said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. I wouldn't ask you to try. But since it is, I do ask that. I do say to try and realize what it is that I have realized. And so over time, we start to see that our that our understanding t- starts to line up with these teachings, that it's real in a, in, a, in a personal and practical way. And we turn towards something. When we come together like this, it's like this room. There's these windows all around. And they, and we each look into the room through our own window. We look through our personal history and our stories and the the things that have happened and make up our life and our own conditioning. But we look into something, you could say, more universal, more timeless, beyond the personal. And this potential we have to uh, realize something deeper than the surface appearances of things. So Sangha, growing out of that intention to look and see each of us for ourselves. So in the story, in the Prince Five Weapons, he was drawing on these external conditions, turning to something that wasn't really reliable. But his own inner wisdom, intelligence and wisdom those proved effective in this battle against the sticky-haired monster. This power of awareness gave him this flexibility to respond to things in the moment. Respond in a way that was uh, allowed his inner resources to come into play in a way that was effective. So this is what we learn through this practice, is through this willingness to touch the present moment just as it is to show up for our life in that way. We find this kind of refuge in this, in the mind, in the heart, in this quality of awareness itself. And we start to realize that this is a trustworthy thing. I mean, just right now for a moment, just take a sense, a feeling, a taste, a flavor for this quality of mindful awareness. Can ask the question in the mind and the heart right now: Is there awareness? Anytime we would ask that question, the answer is always yes. If we're present enough to ask it, then awareness is there, and it's simple, but it changes everything. In a famous verse in one of the collections, teachings of the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, mindfulness is the, is the doorway, is the gateway to the deathless. Heedlessness, the doorway to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. Those are strong words. But it points to this, this key here, with mindfulness, it changes everything. With that, everything is possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning, repeating uh, 
patterns of reactivity, habits in the mind. With mindfulness, we have a chance to actually see what's going on. And we start to see that this awareness is trustworthy and that it can hold anything that arises. We see that it's not affected by uh, what's arising in the mind. We see that the awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness of fear is not afraid. And it's, it's really deeply uh, empowering. And this confidence and strength and faith is so deeply empowering for us. Empowering because um, we're not trusting on external conditions for our well-being and happiness. That's the beauty of this practice is we can draw on our inner, an inner strength that develops through this faith. And we start to put our faith in something that actually is reliable because if we're placing our faith or trust in external conditions, by their nature, they, they change. There's not a, they're unreliable in that way. It's not there's something wrong. We just can't count on them. We, we don't ask them to do something they can't. We don't ask them to provide this source of, of lasting happiness. It's even the best thing. We get it all together. The best, the most beautiful experience or the best situation. It's, it's of the nature to change. It's just the way it is. That's the, the truth of things. That's Dhamma. That which is subject to change is not reliable as a source of lasting happiness or peace or strength for us. So with this trust in awareness itself, then we can rest in the truth of things, conditions as they are. And there's a source of confidence in, of this faith that's resilient and firm. It's kind of deep inner strength that's not uh, buffeted around so much by the winds of change that are always blowing through our life. Praise and blame, joy and sorrow, pain and unpleasant sensations and gain and loss, these things that are always changing. But we can find a base of uh, a solid place to rest the heart underneath all of that change. It's a different kind of awareness and a freedom that's possible in any moment. It doesn't matter what's going on. It's born of this radical intimacy that's what this practice uh, demands of us and opens us to, is the radical intimacy with life, with our own inner world. And so in this exploration of this practice, we take this to uh, any real depth. If we really... plumb the depths of what the, do, the Buddha was pointing to as a possibility for us, we learn that we can actually trust this quality of awareness. We place our faith there, and that's a real refuge. That's a place where faith leads us to a reliable kind of refuge. 
refuge that's not dependent on things being any particular way. So I'll end now with uh, just a few words. This is from uh, uh, one of the Thai forest monks in Thailand named Ajahn Fuang Jotiko. It's taken from a book called Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. That's its basic nature, awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware but can't yet let go of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true so much of the time. But you focus your investigation in. You just keep at it. And if you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will fade away, fade away. Eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, this basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. We can sit quietly for a minute and then I'll, I'll ring the bell and this period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.